Let's pray together. Father, we're here today because we want to be able to hear from you. We need to be able to worship you, to declare back to you who and what you are to us because our souls need this moment of worship. We need to hear your word today because our confidence in you tends to drift and the near-term reality of our own sin plagues us. So would you speak words of comfort and grace, words of conviction and clarity today from your word? We're here today because we want to hear from you, so would you speak? Help me to make this passage clear and evident, and would it be the kind of passage that makes much of you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last four weeks, we've been well served, I think, by a group of people who put together Live 13. And I just want you to know that there is a a large group of people who spent a lot of time, energy, and effort, used some great gifts to be able to serve you, serve me, in regards to this matter of dealing with our anger. And I just want you to know all the people who were involved in delivering to you what you benefited from, all the folks there from video to content to the images that you see to devotional guides um, to uh, the content that you heard here on the platform to all sorts of the visual arts and things of that sort that you were able to receive and benefit from. And I just want you to be able to see these folks in the hallway and express your gratitude to them for serving you so well over the last four weeks. Do you agree with that today? Amen. So our aim for this series in Live was to talk about the subject of anger so that you could get deep in God's Word on this subject, get connected <clears throat> excuse me, with um, other people in a small group, and then also get trained meaning that you could take the um, counseling material, uh, find some um, material how to help other people, how to get into your own soul so that uh, you can begin to apply God's Word in your life and the lives of others. Uh, I hope that you saw through Pastor Andrew the gift that we have in him, and I don't know why in the world you wouldn't take advantage of that gift, why you would not be a part of our counseling training, why you would not want to understand and know and apply God's Word in your life and the lives of others. And so I want to encourage you to keep living after live. Keep dealing with the issue of anger. Keep learning how to apply God's Word. The reality is um, difficult people, difficult traffic, um, family relationships, our own innate sinfulness. It doesn't go away after the month of August. Right? It's going to follow you into the month of September. And so I want to encourage you to keep growing in how to deal with this matter of anger and keep growing in how to be able to apply uh, God's Word to your life. So that was last month, the month of August. Today we're stepping back into the book of Exodus and we're beginning to wrap up this book. We are now in the seventh of seven little sections uh, on this book of Exodus. We're making our way to the final chapter, chapter 40, where God will dwell in the midst of his people. He'll come and he'll inhabit that tabernacle. God will be uh, finally enthroned in his rightful place in the middle of his people. That's why he brought them out of Egypt in the first place. So we're back in the study of Exodus. Some of you um, decided after live to stick with us, and so you're going to jump right into the middle of a series. Others of you have been with us uh, throughout the entire study of the book of Exodus. And so it's important for us to kind of reset, remind you sort of where we are. Let me, rem- let me rem- remind you that the book of Exodus is not about Israel. It's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Egypt. Uh, it's essentially about God. 
The book of Exodus is a display of God's glory and his redemption in pulling the people of Israel out of Egypt, making them his own possession, and laying the framework for what will become clear and evident in the New Testament, the way in which God redeems people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The the book is about God's supremacy over the so-called gods of Egypt. It's about his ability to keep his covenant love. It is about his love for his people. And central to that love is his law. God defines for his people the way in which they should live. The Ten Commandments are a summary that reflects the very heart of the character of God. And as we pause in our study of Exodus, we pause at a very ugly moment. If you remember, chapter 32 of Exodus records one of the greatest failures in Israel's history. Moses was only gone 40 days. He's up on the mountain. People of Israel panic. They don't know what's happened to him, and so they tell Aaron that he needs to make them gods. And so they form this golden calf and begin worshiping it. Moses comes down the mountain, sees what is happening, and a symbolic act of the people's breaking of God's heart, he breaks the two tablets of stone that contain the ten words. And as a result... Judgment comes upon the people. God was angry, people died, and the journey to the promised land is in jeopardy. God, at this point, has said to his people, you go ahead and go into the promised land, but I'm not going. At this point, everything is on the line. In chapter 33, Moses goes back up to the mountain, intercedes for the people before God, asking God, please don't depart from your people. Moses knows, the people of Israel know, that if God leaves us, it's over. I mean, after all, he's the one that pulled us out of Egypt. It's the land that he promises. He's the one that gives us manna. Everything about our life is conditional on his blessing, his approval, and his favor. If God abandons us because of of judging our sinfulness, it's over. And Moses appeals to God. He says to him, This, in verses 15 and 16 of Exodus 33, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So it is... It's hard to overstate the importance of this moment in the life of Israel. Everything is on the line here. If God doesn't go with them, there is no hope for their future. And we left sort of this issue hanging in the balance. What's going to happen next? What is God going to do? And Exodus 34 is the answer to that question. What is God going to do? And here is what he's going to do. God is going to give his people a second chance. This is the foundation upon which the New Testament concept of grace is built. New tablets will be made. The covenant will be renewed. God will reiterate his love for his people. And this will be a stunning display of the grace of God to undeserving sinners. But the question is, why does God do this? Does he do it because he knows Israel will never abandon him again? Does he do it because the Israelites are such a prized possession? 
Does he do it because the people of Israel somehow have made commitments to him and he knows that their word is true? No. The only reason that God renews the covenant is because of God. Because of his grace, because of the essence of who he is. So this book, the book of Exodus, and the story of history is not about Moses or Pharaoh or Egypt or Israel. The story of history is not about you and your family. The story of history is about God and the magnification of his glory as he saves people who don't deserve anything but judgment. This is grace. This is exodus. This is the way that God is. He loves us even though we do not deserve his love. So the beautiful picture here is the simple fact that God's presence among his people is absolutely undeserved and he gives undeserving people a second chance. And the message from Exodus 34 for you and for me is this, that God is still in the process of giving people second chances. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your background is. I bet that every single one of us has things in our past we wish we could rewrite and redo. Things that we're not proud of, things that we're ashamed of. That may have been 50 years ago. It may have been 10 weeks ago. It may have been five days ago. It may have been last evening. But the fact of the matter is the message of the Bible is this. God is a God who's full of grace and full of mercy. This is serious because God is holy, but he is also gracious and kind and forgiving. And there is an offering of second chances for people who've literally blown it. That, that is what the gospel is. And we're going to see the roots of this in Exodus 34. Throughout the Old and New Testament, there is this idea of the faithlessness of God's people despite the faithfulness of God. Psalm 78 captures this very well the psalmist writes but when they flattered but they flattered him with their mouths they lied to him with their tongues their heart was not steadfast toward him they were not faithful to his covenant and then notice what happens yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them he restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath he remembered that they were but flesh aren't you glad that god knows you're just flesh a wind that passes away and comes not again. So today what I want to do is to show you this renewed covenant that God makes with his people. Verses 1 to 28 record that renewal of the covenant. And I want to highlight nine themes from that and then show you the, the, the central text of this chapter so that you could see what is really going on here and why it's so significant for our lives. So nine themes here related to this renewed covenant. Here's the first one, and we see tablets that are made again. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, and then notice this, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. So clearly God's making a point here. And the point is, is there was another covenant, there was another tablet, set of tablets and he invites Moses to make new ones. So when Moses broke those tablets, it was a symbolic act of the people's breaking of God's heart and their covenantal relationship with them. However, God now gives Moses the command to craft two new tablets of stone. So there's tablets that are involved. 
Secondly, there's a mountain that's involved in verses 2 and 4. He invites Moses to come up to the mountain in verse 2 where he will meet with God. He's given instructions that he is to come, but he's to come alone and that the other people are to be kept away from the mountain. And this is similar to what we've seen in Exodus 19 when the people were brought to the base of the mountain and God descended and there was smoke and there was fire and no one could come near the mountain except Moses. And if you remember, the main point of that whole incident was so that the people of God would learn a very, very basic lesson, a lesson that you and I need to never forget. And it is this, that God likes you, but he's not like you. He loves you. But he's not the same as you. God is infinitely different than you. He's holy. You're not. That's a problem. Thus, the need for grace. That's the lesson of Exodus 19. That's the lesson of the mountain. So we have tablets. We have mountain. The next thing we have, verses 5 to 9, is we have presence. Moses goes up on the mountain, and God comes down in verse 5. He comes down in a cloud and he proclaims his name to Moses. So we have this cloud and name proclamation to Moses. We've seen this 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 way that God works before. We saw this in the burning bush where we have a a, a burning bush that, that isn't completely consumed and God reveals his name to Moses, gives him his charge. And then from there we see God protecting Israel from Pharaoh by virtue of this cloud. We we see the cloud descending on the mountain, symbolizing God's presence. It, it showed up in the tent of meeting outside of the camp where Moses meets with God. And eventually in Exodus 40, when this book reaches its its apex or its conclusion, the, the tabernacle will be set in the middle of the camp and God will come and dwell in the middle of his people. And that's when this book will end. God comes to his people. He's redeemed them, and now he lives among them. That's the whole purpose of this book, that God now has come to live with his people. The personal presence of God. Verses 6 to 7, verses 6 to 9 are very important. They address uh, what God said as he passed by, as he declared his name to Moses. We're going to come back to those verses um, at the end. They are what I think are the most important verses of the entire chapter, so we'll come back to them. Fourth, there is the implication of God's proclamation of his name to the nations through Israel. Verse 10, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I do with you. In other words, I am doing all of these things for you, not just for you, but at the end of the day so the whole world can see the beautiful display of my glory. This is the same thing that God said to Moses to say to Pharaoh, that he raised you up, Pharaoh, so that God could display in you the mighty works of God so the world would know that he is the one true God. So Pharaoh and Moses and Israel, they all exist for one purpose, to declare the glorious reality of who God is. There is an agenda here that God has that Israel is a part of. He doesn't redeem them just for them. He redeems them for himself. So there are there is the implication of the nations. Next, verses 11 to 17 We have instructions regarding not worshiping other gods. An important part of their covenant with God was God's exclusive claim over his people. They lived in a a polytheistic world, a world in which there were many gods that were worshipped. And Israel was to be a type of nation as they entered into that worldview. They were to be a nation who worshipped the one true God. 
Verses 18 to 26, they were to be a people marked by the exodus, that they used to be slaves and now they had been redeemed. Verses 18 to 20 tell us that they are to mark their redemption by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast was connected with the Passover event and the the exodus from which God delivered them from the nation of Egypt. As well, if you look at verses 20, uh, verse, verse 20, you'll see that that every firstborn belongs to God. The text tells us that God owns them. They belong to Him. He delivered them from bondage in Egypt. They were His own. He rescued them. They were His inheritance. They were an Exodus people. At number seven, they were to remember things about their past and there were to be markers of remembrance not the least of which was every six days they were to rest on the seventh day they were to work six days on that seventh day they were to rest as a reminder that life does not consist of just work verse 21 six days you shall work but on the seventh day you shall rest and notice verse 21 in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest Now, why does he say that? You know why? Because in plowing time and in harvest time, you'd be most tempted to not rest. We got to get the crops in. We got this little window. Let's push through. Let's just work eight, nine, ten days straight. We got to get the crops in and then we'll rest. And the point is not about the pacing of your activity. The point is, is that you would be very, it'd be very easy to be consumed with your work and to think that's what your identity is in. And so as a marker, so that the people wouldn't begin to think that their work was who they really were, God says you must rest every seven days, even in the midst of your busiest seasons. Now, in the midst of a busy culture that we live, isn't this helpful to hear and a good reminder? They were to remember by virtue of their resting. They were to remember by virtue of their festivals. It talks about the Feast of Weeks in verse 22 and the Feast of Ingathering at year's end in verse 22. And as well, three times a year in verse 23, they were to appear before God. Eighth, this renewal of the covenant involved instructions about sacrifices so there was to be regular offerings and sacrifices to that were to be made and they were to be made these sacrifices in accordance with god's instructions they were to not mimic the sacrifices of the pagans in which whose culture in which they lived that's what that sort of crazy statement is you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk you may have read that heard that like what what does that mean so we, we think what that is is some sort of pagan worship practice and the idea being is that israel was to be a, a unique and distinct a pure nation they were to not mimic the pagan worship practices but were to sacrifice in accordance with god's commands and then finally number nine this renewal of covenant involved the statement or reaffirmation of Moses and a provision for him. Verse 28, so Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So notice here we have another 40 days. Even though the last 40 days didn't work out so well, there's another opportunity for another 40 days. And Moses is there with the the presence of the Lord. He's sustained by the presence of the Lord. And he's marked as the mediator between God and the people of Israel. Now, if you've been a part of our study of Exodus 
you'll recognize every single one of these themes. These are, these are familiar, aren't they? They're not new. These are, these are familiar themes. If you've never been in the book of Exodus, let me just tell you that everything I just covered, all of those ten themes, you could trace them all the way back in the book of Exodus. So we see these things over and over and over and over. So everything I just told you, all nine of these themes, we covered them, and here's the point. Nothing that I've told you is new, and that is beautiful. Let me tell you why. It's beautiful because what this is, God is restating his covenant. He is, in effect, reestablishing this relationship with Israel. He is giving them a second chance. Even though Israel has sinned grievously, God is offering an opportunity for them for reconciliation and forgiveness. He is extending grace upon grace to them. This is the entire point of chapter 34. This is the answer to the tragedy of chapter 32 and chapter 33. It is that the book of Exodus is designed to be a theological book. It's meant to say something glorious about God. It's set in a narrative context, but it's communicating something about the substance of this God who Israel serves, this God who then extends grace to people in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. And the message of Exodus 34 is this, that God is a mercy-loving, grace-giving, covenant-renewing God. He is a God of second chances. A God who is merciful, a God who is kind, a God who knows your history better than you do. And yet a God who still chooses to love you. Now don't get me wrong, he still is a God who is not like you. He likes you, but he's not like you. A God who loves you even though he's different. But he is a God who is as deeply gracious as he is dangerously holy. That's beautiful. That God is not like us and yet He loves us. That He is as deeply gracious as He is dangerously holy. And here is this God who knows us better than we even know ourselves. Who knows Israel better than they He knows what's going to happen in the future. And yet He still extends grace to them. The exact same covenant that they have broken. He establishes it to them again. This is the reason why we gather in this room on the Lord's Day. It is to rehearse God's grace and mercy. It is to be reminded of what He has done and who He is. It is to communicate that grace to our children. It is to declare it over our friends and people with whom we call brother and sister in Christ. It is to celebrate that we serve a God who graciously gives people hope in a second chance. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 145. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The Lord upholds those who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. So I have beautiful news to you today. Even though you fall, God is able to help pick you back up and give you hope in Christ. 
He's able to help you see the mercy and grace that is offered to you. He doesn't take your sin lightly. He doesn't deal with you in a a manner that is trivial, and yet He also deals with you in a way that is kind and gracious and full of love. It is this grace and love that is the essence of what the Bible is all about, and it's what have led hymn writers to, to pen words like this, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, in the, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to the glorious rest above. Or another one where the, the, the hymn writer talking about the love of God describes or paints this picture. If you could fill up the ocean with ink and if all the skies were like parchment and if you could have um, every stalk on earth would be a pen and then took every single one of us and we started writing about the love of God that there would be an exhaustible subject matter that we would drain the ocean dry of its ink that we would still never be able to even touch the grace and the beauty of God. Listen to what it says. Could we with ink the ocean fill where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure! How measureless and strong it shall forever endure the saints and angels' song. Listen to me. This is the beauty of God's inexhaustible grace. He is a God of second chances. And some of you need to know and understand that today because you live with this nagging guilt of your past. And you need to know that the beautiful thing about the church is the church is made up of a bunch of people who have messed up royally and their only confession is not that they're good people or perfect people or people who won't ever mess up again, but rather the confession is, I am a sinner and I have a wonderful Savior who saved me from myself. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes church this way, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul gets serious and says, look, sin is a big deal. Don't you take God's grace and act as though you can just live any way that you want? Paul says, look, this is a serious matter, and people who continue to practice and live this way, who this is the pattern of their lives, they can't inherit the kingdom of God. He says, look, this is serious stuff, and then says... And such were some of you. That's the beauty of the church. Is that we are people who have been rescued from ourselves. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what the community of the redeemed are supposed to be about. It is that we are no different than the people of Israel. Their story is our story. So when you read Exodus... You see not only God dealing with Israel, but you see the way in which he has dealt with you. We see the mercy and grace of God. We see God willing to give people a second chance. So the question, though, is this. Why why does God do this? Back to verses 6, 7, 8, and nine. The reason that God does this 
is so that the world will know there is no one like him. The reason that God does this is not because we are worthy of this love, not because we deserve a second chance, and certainly not because he knows our performance is going to improve in the future. Just because you had four weeks on anger doesn't mean it's over, right? God is merciful and kind to us despite knowing the tendency of our wayward heart. So why does God give people a second chance? Here's why. Because that is who He is. That is the essence of His character. The display of His grace is meant to say something about Him. Look at verse 6. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... The the double use of that name Yahweh, Yahweh, is probably either for emphasis or for affection. Something like, I am your dear Yahweh. And then we find God describing Himself. And this is really important because the basis of God giving people a second chance is rooted not in anything else other than God's character, in the essence of who He is. And so God's ability to give people a second chance is completely conditional on the reality of who He is. He displays His glory and His grace by being gracious and kind, which is why we see the following sort of descriptions of God's character. The Lord, the Lord, a God, first one here, He's merciful, which means that he is compassionate and he genuinely cares about his people. He's gracious. It means he does things for people that they don't deserve and even beyond what they would have expected. When you, when you come to faith in Christ the first time, you realize, boy, I've, I've received much more than I deserve. You receive forgiveness when you know you didn't deserve it. But then, the, you know, the amazing thing is, I find that the older and older I get, the more beautiful that grace becomes. I see further and further and further the evidences of God's grace, so that God's grace isn't getting old. It's actually getting more and more attractive as I slide quickly towards death. Right? The grace of God is getting greater and greater and greater in my life as I see the beauty that everything I have is a gift from God. There's, there's, there's nothing that I receive that I deserve. Everything is a trophy of His benevolent kindness. He's slow to anger, meaning He's patient with people and their waywardness and their failures. He's, he's patient with us. He's patient with people who heard that we we're going to study anger in the month of August and said arrogantly, oh, I don't have an issue with anger. <laughs> and then showed up and God showed you that you have an issue with anger. He's patient with us in those moments. He's patient with people who think they're nailing it when they're not, who, people, who see other people's sins more clearly than they see their own. He's patient and kind with us. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is a covenant keeper. He's loyal to us even though we are not loyal to Him. He abounds, the text says, in faithfulness, meaning He is equally full of truth in that He can be trusted equivocally and eternally. When God says in His Word, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, that means that He speaks truthfully and therefore you can come to Him and receive assurance that when you confess, He indeed forgives. And you say, well, how do you know that? Answer, 1 John 1, nine, Rooted 
in the unequivocal character of God's faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. That God's love will continue indefinitely. That means that if you're a grandparent, as your children grow, grandchildren grow, that God will be just as gracious and kind to them as He has been to you. And God has been just as kind to you as He has been to people who came before you and that God will keep his covenant love for thousands. And then it says he forgives iniquity and the transgression and sins that God eagerly forgives all kinds of sins. And this flows. He doesn't, he doesn't forgive sins regretfully or somehow in a way in which God begrudgingly forgives sins. It's the essence of who he is to want to forgive sin. And so he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And then the text also says this. Forgiving iniquity and sin, this is verse 7, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I need to explain what this text means here. I need to say a word about this because I've heard people cite this text as the ground for believing in sort of generational curses where God, the, the idea of that is that God judges or curses future generations for the sins of previous generations. I've talked with people who were convinced, they were convinced, my family is cursed, like they were being judged because of sins of their parents or their grandparents. That's not what this text is saying. Rather, the text is describing God's just punishment of sin in each and every generation if that sin continues to be repeated. The idea is that God is so gracious and merciful that you wouldn't, as a grandchild, receiving grace upon grace upon grace, begin to play with sin and thinks, well, God judged it in a former generation. I'm going to be able to get away with it. No, no, no. The idea is that God is equally just in every generation, but it also means that he doesn't extend the punishment of fathers to their children and to their grandchildren. He doesn't extend the punishment that way, but it does mean if you continue in the pattern that's been evidenced by your parents or your grandparents, that God is certainly to hold you equally accountable and you can't pass off your accountability to your genes or your history or your family background. The reality is, if you look up your family tree, you'll, you'll see some interesting folks in that genealogy. Some good and not so good. And the reality is, you could probably look back on your family history. You may be able to see patterns, patterns of infidelity, maybe substance abuse, patterns of same-sex attraction or violent behavior or suicide. But you need to know that those those patterns, those aren't a sign of God's punishment or judgment indicating that there's no hope. Like, there's no hope for my family because we've been cursed by God. Rather, what those things are, that's a product of the brokenness of the world. You are not hopelessly cursed by God because of the sins of other people. There is opportunity for second chance and grace upon grace upon grace. At the same time, you better take the sins of your own family very, very seriously. Because nobody gets a pass on God's justice. At the same time, no one's held accountable for the sins of other people that have been committed generations upon generations upon generations ago. The promise here is this. 
that God will treat you justly for your own sins and that God is a God of second chances. He's a God who's full of justice and He's full of mercy. He is as deeply generous and gracious as He is dangerously holy. That's why Moses makes this statement in verse 9. He says this to God, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Notice that the onus of God's saving grace is on God and not them. God, come in the midst of us. We're stiff-necked. We need your pardoning and take us for your inheritance. In other words, God, we are completely at your mercy. And I'm telling you, the more you understand about God's grace, the more you understand about the beauty of the essence of his character, the more you understand of what it is that God did for us in Christ, the more you are overwhelmed with the beauty of the fact that God would ever condescend and love us despite who we are and pardon us despite being absolutely undeserved of that grace. The implication of this and the application of this applies to every single person here. And the reason is, is that every single one of us have broken our relationship with God. We violated the very heart of what the Bible calls us to do and what it calls us to be. And the good news of the Bible is that through Christ, God is able to make you a new person from the inside out. There's some of you here today, you believe this lie. Mark, what I've done is so bad, there is no way God could ever forgive me. And I'm here to tell you that is absolutely, fundamentally false. The beauty of God's grace extends beyond what you could possibly ever imagine, ask, or think. And there is no hindrance to you coming to faith in Christ today because of what you've done that's wrong. Instead, that is the very reason why Christ came. God is able to give you a second chance. In fact, Jesus called it being born again. It means that he makes you new. He takes the old you and he changes you from the inside out. And that means that those of you who experience the new birth, you know what the Lord's Day is about? The Lord's Day is about reflecting on the beauty and drinking deeply of what it means to have been given a second chance. That everything about your life is now marked and defined by I have been given a second opportunity to love God and serve him forever. It means that even after Christ, you still sin and you fall. It means that God still has grace available to you. It means that you take that sin seriously and you can't play around and sort of have this cavalier attitude of, well, it doesn't matter if I sin, God's going to continue to forgive me. If you have that attitude, you don't understand God's grace. You don't even have God's grace. God's grace means that you taste deeply the sweet beauty of God's forgiveness. And when you taste it, you say in your soul, I want to live in this grace and honor Him and follow Him for the rest of my life, knowing full well that you won't be able to, and yet God is able to give you the grace that when you fall to get back up and keep following Him and following hard after Him. Don't let the enemy convince you for, a one, for one moment that because of your failure, somehow you've fallen out of the love of God. You haven't. And this also means, friends, that if you have received this kind of grace and you have a chance to be able to be born again and to have a second chance, it means that we ought to be the kind of people who give other people lots of second chances. 
that we're the kind of folks who are filled with extravagant grace, who love people, who, who cover their, their, their annoying actions and their behaviors that just drive us crazy and make us angry, and we cover those in grace because we know the extent to which God has applied grace to us. God loves us not because we're worthy, but because He's so wonderful. I love what April said in her testimony, that Christ is the more I've been longing for. So the invitation is to come for more, for more grace. Come to Him today, return to Him, because the Bible says He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is, tells us in Exodus 34, a God of second chances. Or in the words of Jesus, come unto me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So come. Come to Him. Bring all your failures, all your baggage. He knows it all. And so here I come again. Help us, Father, The shame that we feel because of our failings at times is overwhelming and great. The beauty of Your grace is stunning and attractive. And yet this grace is often elusive to us because we... Lord, it's not that we feel like we don't deserve. We know we don't deserve it. It's that our sins seem so great and our shame so large that we begin to lose hope. And so today I pray that you would return to us, that you'd come to us, that you'd remind us of what it means to be your inheritance. And friends, while we're just in this quiet moment before the benediction and we're dismissed, I wonder if there's just something you need to talk to the Lord about today. You may be here today and... You need to be born again. And maybe you just, right where you're seated, just would cry out to the Lord and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. Would you come into my life today? Maybe like the story of April, you've reached the end of your rope and God has designed it that way so that you would find what you really need. Now, others of you, you know you've been born again, you know you've received Christ, but the reality is that the beauty of God's grace could leak. And maybe in the last week, there's been just really bad things in your mind, coming out of your mouth, actions. And today, you just need to confess that to the Lord, believing that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He's a God of second chances, a God of mercy. So Lord, would you help us to be a a, a righteous, godly people whose identity and life is rooted in grace that's greater than our sin. Thank you that you're a God of second chances. Thank you that you're a God full of mercy, full of grace, slow to anger, always abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we pray this in the promise-laden name of Jesus, 
our Savior. Amen. As always, there'll be some folks up here afterwards who would love to be able to pray for you if you are overwhelmed with something that's going on in your life. Don't leave today. They're here to pour God's grace in your soul. All right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.